Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. If you like to gamble, there's plenty of places to try your luck. From the old-fashioned lottery to Kino in local bars and restaurants, you can also travel to the two big casinos in southeastern Connecticut to play slots or lay down a wager. And there's action happening at the state capitol, too, as lobbyists for a bill to legalize sports betting in the state place bets that this session they can make it happen. While government and private companies gain billions through gaming, it's at the expense of people. People like your family members, your co-workers, your neighbors. Of course, not everyone becomes addicted to gambling, but it happens to people from all different backgrounds. Today, where we live, we look at a new report from Connecticut Public Radio and Sharing America. It's an initiative that covers race, identity, and culture in four cities, including Hartford. In the series Fixed Odds, Sharing America looks at the issue of problem gambling on communities of color. And Connecticut Public Radio reporter Vanessa De La Torre is part of that collaboration. And she joins me in studio to talk about her story in this series. Vanessa, welcome back to the show. Hey, Lucy. So we were wondering, you know, where did this idea come from to look at problem gambling on communities of color? It actually started with uh, one of our guests here, Quinn Trong. Um, as a journalist, sometimes you're like, you know, what's going to be my next big story? Um, so I was talking to Quinn, who's a healthcare advocate, about issues of mental health in communities of color. And during that conversation a few months ago, she mentioned um, the significant cultural stigma in Asian cultures um, over mental health and addiction issues including uh, gambling addiction. You know, she was talking about the issue of gambling addiction in her community. And to me, that was something that was new. Um, You know, Quinn was just kind of mentioning, like, this is reality, this is fact of life. But to me, I was like, let me, you know, let me learn more about this. And so in the course of reporting and research, we um, found that there's a consensus among researchers who study this issue that there are elevated rates of gambling addiction among communities of color, including Asians, including African-Americans, including Latinos. Um, And there are other populations that are also vulnerable, including military veterans. Now, in your report, and we're going to tweet out the link, it's also on our website at wmpr.org slash where we live, you were looking at problem gambling affecting Southeast Asian refugees. What makes that population so vulnerable, Vanessa? Uh, There are numerous reasons. So we have, you know, Southeast Asian refugees here in Connecticut. There are neighbors. um, There are residents. And there are a number of factors. One is that in certain Asian cultures, there's a big emphasis on fortune and luck. And so gambling is seen as already very socially acceptable. It's part of the entertainment. It's you know, a way that families bond. Um, pretty much any type of family gathering, whether it's like a baby shower or birthday, holidays, you, know, you can expect you know, the family to, to be gambling in some way. And that includes um, games of cards or, or dice. But this is an activity that involves... Um, kind of the whole family. Um, So that was one of the reasons. But another major reason is that there's a significant history of trauma for Southeast Asian refugees uh, who came to the U.S. after the Vietnam War. So what we found is that the high of gambling becomes a way of seeking comfort. Uh, One of the folks I talked to is an expert named Dr. Timothy Fong. He's an addiction psychiatrist 
at UCLA's Gambling Studies Program. He talked a lot about that, um, this history of trauma. Uh, another factor is that a lot of refugees end up in low-wage work, so there is an issue of poverty. And so among some refugees, uh, gambling is seen as a way of making fast money. Um, and so another reason, <laughs> there are so many reasons, um, is that there is easy access in Connecticut to gambling. There are certainly like illegal card games, but there's also easy access to casinos. Uh, you mentioned uh, the role of you know playing cards and gambling within Asian communities, uh, families, and so I wanted to bring in uh, Quinn Trong, who you mentioned. Uh, she's outreach and evaluation manager of the North Central Regional Mental Health Board. Quinn, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Lucy. So let's hear a little bit about uh, your personal story. Uh, where where did your family come from? And and talk about a little uh, build on what Vanessa was saying about um, how gambling plays a part in your culture. Sure. My family came from Vietnam. We are refugees. And my family, uh, I mean, we have an extended family, but uh, my my personal family came in late 1990. And when we came to the United States, um, my aunts and uncles and grandmother all lived within, you know, a 10-mile radius of each other. And so often on the weekends, we would get together to talk and to cook and to eat and also to play cards. I mean, this was a huge part of my upbringing to be surrounded by family and to play games um, as part of reconnecting with our culture and remembering what Vietnam is about and using the language and bringing that tradition onto uh, the next generation. So gambling for us was, you know, it brings a cozy feeling to me to see a deck of cards because it reminds me of my grandmother and the traditions that she tried to pass on. Um, and so, you know, having it be a central part of our lives, we are exposed to it from a young age. We we like it. We appreciate it. Um, and But because of that, it can also vulnerabilize our community to the problems of gambling, like Vanessa mentioned. Oh, when we think about um, specific Asian cultures, the role of fortune and luck, can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, not just that feeling of, you know, when you're with your family, that togetherness, but um, how in uh, specific cultures, uh, you know, thinking about luck and fortune and how it's not something that people, um, not, all, not all cultures embrace, uh, but in specific cultures, there is that, um, that feeling uh, and acceptance. Can you talk a little bit more about that, Quinn? Sure. I mean, I, I know that within our culture, we think that, you know, certain numbers have imbued within them a, a, a lucky significance or certain dates are lucky. Uh, and so for for us, you know, having uh, having an opportunity or, or a chance, it, it, it coincides with certain numbers. And uh, and so for us, gambling is a, a chance to kind of use that knowledge of certain numbers and certain dates to better our fortunes. Uh, and so it's it feels more controllable than it actually is. Um, and, and, you know, we, we always hope that luck is going to come our way, uh, which is why we engage in uh, recreational card playing or gambling in a big way. 
When I was uh, reading uh, Vanessa's story, I was thinking back to uh, my parents are from India and numbers and uh, astrology uh, playing a big part in uh, Indian culture. But also I remember my dad religiously would play the lottery. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember him uh, sitting at the table and uh, coming up with specific numbers to play. And, you know, he never won. But I always wondered, you know, as I as an adult, you know, what was it about playing the lottery uh, that he enjoyed uh, so much? Uh, Vanessa, I wanted to go back to you as we talked to Vanessa De La Torre who's a reporter for Connecticut Public Radio, also part of a public radio collaboration called Sharing America. There's a new series uh, this collaborative put out uh, called Fixed Odds, and it looked at problem gambling among communities of color. Uh, Vanessa, you focused in on Southeast Asian refugees. What do we know about uh, that population in Connecticut? What are their financial realities? Well, um, Quinn might be able to speak more to this, but, I mean, the, the fact is that you know, some come in, you know, not necessarily knowing English uh, right away. So unfortunately, that that only opens up certain jobs, uh, including factory jobs, um, low wage jobs. And so the reality is that there is a lot of poverty in this community in Connecticut. Uh, Quinn, did you want to add to that in terms of the types of jobs and what their uh, circumstances are financially? Absolutely. I mean, certainly the older generation face a lot of barriers to employment when they first come here. Certainly my parents, who were educated in Vietnam, had no English opportunities um, or, or abilities. And while I learned English in school and had peers, you know, they really struggled uh, to learn it uh, in their 30s and 40s. And so um, they worked at at the grocery store. They were, you know, my dad was a machinist. He worked at the hotel and did dishes. And so it's it's a lot of, you know, blue collar, low wage jobs that you have access to. Um, and then in addition, you're kind of isolated. Uh, if you're a part of the older generation, you know, you're kind of ensconced in your cultural communities because you don't have a lot of opportunities to go out and socialize and meet other people outside of your community or family. And then seeing how vulnerable that makes them, especially when they're on, uh, you know, doing working minimum wage jobs uh, and they're on fixed income, so to speak. But then, uh, you know, spending some of that money on gambling and not being able to stop because of that addiction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a big concern for us and especially for the older generation that is less likely to want to talk about it because it's such a stigmatized issue. Um, much more likely to talk about their wins or the excitement of gambling or the cultural aspects of gambling, but much less likely to seek help for it. Uh, Vanessa uh, spoke again to uh, Dr. Timothy Fong. He's a professor of addiction psychiatry and co-director of UCLA's Gambling Studies Program. Uh, This is what he he said when uh, she asked specifically about the Southeast Asian refugee population. And when you have tremendous amounts of poverty, particularly in the Southeast Asian uh, refugee population, that tends to be a very tempting idea. Uh, So we uh, heard Quinn uh, talk about that, uh, where people are still uh, gambling, thinking that maybe uh, luck will bring them out of their circumstances. Uh, This is where we live. Again, Quinn Quinn Trong is here with me, Outreach and Evaluation Manager of the North Central Regional Mental Health Board, and Vanessa De La Torre, reporter for WNPR, Connecticut Public Radio. Um, If you have a question or you have a comment about problem gambling in our communities here in the state, you can join us, 860-275-7266. Uh, When we uh, think about the Southeast Asian refugee uh, community, uh, what studies have been done looking at these specific populations, whether they're Cambodian, Vietnamese? Right. So there's one particular study that was done more than a decade ago 
Um, the report came out in 2003, and a lot of experts, because there's not a whole lot of uh, literature and, and data on this area, they point to this particular study that came out in 2003. It was led by um, the late Nancy Petrie out of UConn, UConn Health Center, and it took a look at 96 Southeast Asian refugees from Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam who are in Connecticut and attending you know, Southeast Asian community centers and so did a survey on them, and it found that nearly 60% of them were addicted to gambling, which was astronomical. I mean, that's nearly 30 times the national average. In your story, uh, wagering at least $500 uh, in the past two months, and the games that they played, uh, their, the choice, that the things that they were looking at were lottery and cars to slot machines and scratch tickets. We know how easy it is to pick those up at convenience stores. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so sometimes people don't associate scratch-offs with, with gambling necessarily. It's like, oh, I'm just going to get some scratch-offs. Or I'm going to play the lottery. I mean, that, that is those are forms of gambling. Uh, in addition to the card games, the dice, and going to the casinos with the slot machines and the card games. Uh, Quinn, if it's such a problem, uh, you know, why has this issue remained hidden for so long? Well, we don't like to talk about it as a community. Uh, as I mentioned before, it's, it's, it's difficult for Asian Americans to talk about mental health in particular. And problem gambling is a subset of mental health, right? It's an addiction. Um, and people often don't want to share the bad luck or bring um, a bad name upon their family. And so they're reluctant to talk about it until it's too late. And then suddenly, you know, they can't pay their mortgage or debt debtors are coming after them. Uh, and that's how the community finds out. I mean, through these very extreme crisis moments is when we finally figure out the problem. But, you know, one of my big passions is to kind Get, get the word out to talk about gambling and problem gambling and mental health issues so that it's not so stigmatized and so that we can address it sooner rather than later rather than at the crisis point. Uh, that uh, study that uh, Vanessa mentioned done in 2003, you know, is there a push to, uh, to try to encourage researchers to look at this problem again among uh, this population? I mean, certainly there are ad community advocates who are very interested in getting this kind of research and in also gathering data and disaggregating that data so that we can figure out the issues particular to certain minority communities uh, within Connecticut. That's a really tough issue for us to be tackling at this point, but it's something that you know I'm certainly very passionate about, and I'm going to be talking with the legislature about this season. Um, we're also working on trying to you know, push for community health workers, people who are from within the communities who can speak to uh, these community issues, who can connect community members to services or resources or uh, translation uh, services so that they can get the help that they need. And that's another issue that we're very passionate about. Uh, we started the uh, the hour talking about your personal experience and, again, uh, your memories of your family playing uh, together. Um, how did uh, your parents talk to you about gambling or this issue of addiction? Because you, you mentioned among uh, uh, Asians, we don't talk about getting help if there's a problem. Right. Absolutely. I mean, my parents uh, encouraged us to participate in the games, you know, when we were with my grandmother. It's a huge family endeavor. And so um, they encouraged it. But my dad, uh, who survived a war and who, you know, was imprisoned for his role in the, um, in the war as a South Vietnamese soldier, you know, warned us against the the dangers of gambling. And so he wanted to make sure that while we engaged in it as a family, that, you know, didn't go beyond that, that there were 
repercussions beyond which we could control. And, we, you know, we were so cash-strapped as a family. We needed to focus on our goals. And so I think that lesson always sat with me and affected me to a great deal. But I can imagine that um, in other communities or in other families where that message isn't so strongly asserted, um, you know, somebody could very quickly fall to the allure of, of, of problem gambling. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Quinn Trong, Outreach and Evaluation Manager of the North Central Regional Mental Health Board, and Vanessa Delatore, reporter for WMPR, Connecticut Public Radio, and part of a public radio collaboration called Sharing America. Coming up, we're going to hear how a local nonprofit is reaching out to the Asian community. We're going to learn more about why there's a reluctance among some to seek help for addiction. And we want to hear from you. Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook. Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Addiction comes in many forms and develops among people from many different backgrounds. Today we're focusing on gambling addiction and how a person's culture can exacerbate this problem, even impacting an individual's ability to reach out for help. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. In studio with me is Vanessa De La Torre, reporter for WMPR, Connecticut Public Radio, also part of a public radio collaboration called Sharing America, and Quinn Trong, Outreach and Evaluation manager of the North Central Regional Mental Health Board. We've been learning about this series from Sharing America called Fixed Odds, looking at problem gambling among communities of color. Uh, Vanessa, you were telling us about your story uh, uh, focusing on Southeast Asian refugees uh, and and issues with, with problem gambling. What did you find out in terms of the trends when you look at uh, whether or not they're seeking help, uh, mental health supports and services? Right. Uh, well, in the course of reporting, you know, realized, um, you know, time and again that there's a huge cultural stigma in Asian cultures over seeking help for mental health services and addiction issues. And, you know, in the course of that reporting, you know, came across national data showing that Asians are least likely among uh, ethnic groups in the U.S. to use mental health services. And that's just across the board. Um, and in particular in Connecticut, you know, when you look at uh, problem Gambling Services, which is um, part under the state's uh, Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services Department. Um, very few callers who are, you know, calling into the Problem Gambling Hotline are Asian. Um, so, for example, there's in Connecticut uh, about 5% of the population um, is Asian. Um, as far as callers to the Problem Gambling Hotline, it's around 3%. Uh, Quinn, could you uh, build on why there is that stigma? When we say stigma, what do we mean? So if someone um, is in this particular uh, Southeast Asian community um, and there's a question of, you know, do I talk to my doctor? Do I go to a local clinic? What's keeping them from doing that? Sure. I mean, first, there's an, a self-awareness factor, right? And so if, if you've grown up in a culture where 
problem, I mean, where gambling and playing cards and going out and going to the casinos is common stance, then you don't think that those activities are problematic in any sort of way. And then, you know, you have to kind of figure out, okay, so at which point is, is, is my behavior problematic? And it's really difficult for people who are in the throes of gambling addiction to understand and to recognize when gambling is becoming an impediment to their life, especially when their fam, family and friends are engaged in this activity all the time or with some sort of frequency that most other communities aren't. So I think that self-awareness is a big impediment to accessing help or even a cry for help, which is why I think it's important to talk about gambling and to really figure out when is it safe in recreational gambling and where do you Titter, teeter on the line, you know, between safe and problem gambling. Um, but the second part of it is really, you know, this shame, this guilt of, you know, putting something terrible upon your community and your family, making a bad name for yourself, and uh, and and not living up to your potential. You know, all of us as refugees come over with this huge um, dream of making it big in some way, and gambling is a means to that end. And, um, you know, when you win, you can talk about it. When you don't win, it's a setback, and it's ter- terrible, and people don't want to talk about it. Um, and, you know, there's this cycle, vicious cycle of depression and anxiety that accompanies uh, problem gambling. And so in our community, we don't have the language to talk about mental health and addiction issues. We don't know how to reach out for help with those particular issues because uh, you know, in our community, it's about survival. It's about just trying to get through the day to day, trying to make your rent, trying to put food on the table for your for your family. And so when when you think about mental health issues, you know, maybe our community thinks it's it's for other communities that have the resources or have the language or or have the I don't know culture to to be able to access those things, have the resources to access those things. So I think there's an accessibility issue that is also problematic. Is there an element of skepticism, too, that, you know, what will this uh, Western uh, clinic treatment methods uh, really do? Absolutely, yes. I think there's um, feeling like the outsider and not knowing whether or not, you know, with the language barriers and uh, with the cultural barriers, whether or not there's going to be a resonance with the cultural issues um, and particular uh, working class issues that people are dealing with. Um, and then, yes, there's there's a skepticism of yeah, what, what, what are these Western methods really f- there for? And so there needs to be a brokering or a bridging of understanding between service providers that want to make sure that they can connect with the most vulnerable communities and those community members that are, you know, not even aware that they might benefit from these services. Uh, There's a clinic in Hartford that is working to reach out to Asian members in our community. For more, joining us in studio now is uh, Toyan Long, lead case manager with Asian Family Services Program of the Community Renewal Team in Hartford, Connecticut. And it's a community action agency for both Hartford and Middlesex County, CRT. Uh, Toyan, welcome to our show. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what is the Asian Family Services Program? Um, Asian Family Services Program um, is the agency to provide um, counseling and support services to individual, family, and group therapy to help clients learn new skills, to cope with the variety of life issues such as parent-child conflict, trauma, drug addiction, and losses. Has this program been around for some time, and why the focus on on Asian Americans and refugees? Yes, um, this um, program, it's a program of CRT and the Asian Family Services. It's been um, um, in Hartford for quite a while. 
um, and they uh, had been helping all this uh, Southeast Asian uh, from wartime country. And uh, uh, so, but I joined the uh, the program in 2005. So that, thank you. And tell us more about the clients that you're seeing. What brings them in inside to the door for help? Um, some of the client, um, they uh, probably have the um, mental health issue, um, you know, uh, before. So they came to us um, to um, get the treatment um, for many years. But then other clientele, they came to us through the referral resource, like the court mandate and also the um, other uh, clinic um, through, uh, for, for help with um, their mental health issue uh, when they go to the clinic and they found out that um, they don't have any physical uh, problem. I understand uh, you also have a, a personal experience that helps you in your work with uh, these individuals. You came to the U.S. as a refugee from Cambodia? Yes, um, I came um, here in the state in 2003 as a refugee. Um, I uh, live in New York for about 20 years, and then I moved up to Connecticut and joined Asian Family Services. Um, I learned uh, that Asia, Southeast Asian um, really need mental health services. Um, because of their uh, background of war trauma um, from, you know, where they come from. And there's a lot of baggage that they carry with them. So uh, also because um, the, the population, Southeast Asian, don't um, know anything about the mental health services. So Asian Family Services established in 1996 uh, mm -hmm. to, you know, serve those populations. Uh, we heard uh, Quinn talk earlier about some of the barriers that keeps uh, uh, Asian members of our community from asking for help. Uh, we heard her talk about uh, that feeling of shame. Um, if there is a problem, they don't want to bring shame on their family. Is that something that you hear from your clients? Um, to the family uh, member themselves and also to the community, um, losing face is really a big issue because they don't want to bring shame or losing face to the family member um, or to the community because that's really um, the only place and the only um, connection they have instead of going out there and socialize with other group. So, um, no, they um, even though they have mental health issues, they're not going to come forward and seek services so it can help them um, or other group. Mom may think that they don't have an issue with the mental health issue or even including the uh, problem gambling. Uh, Toyan Long, again, is lead case manager with Asian Family Services. It's a program for the community renewal team in Hartford. I want to go back to Vanessa Della Torre, who uh, reported this story for WMPR and the Sharing America Public Radio collaboration. Uh, tell us more about, we heard uh, Toyan mention that some of the clients are court-mandated to come to get um, help. Others uh, are getting referrals, maybe from their primary care physician who sees that there's something going on that's exacerbating some health conditions and they find out that um, there is an addiction to gambling. Is it at the point where uh, people have reached a breaking point? Their life is falling apart. They're losing their homes. There's stress in the family that brings them to the door. Absolutely. That's something that I heard um, frequently throughout the reporting is that often, you know, you know, in some cultures, it's, it's kind of accepted and common to go see, seek a therapist when you're maybe going through some depression issues. But 
in the Asian cultures and, and in the Southeast Asian community, often, you know, you end up perhaps at Asian Family Services after it's become a crisis. It's already become a crisis. Say you have chest pain because of the enormous amount of stress you're under because of this gambling addiction. Then you end up, say, in the ER. But what's the real underlying issue? Could be gambling addiction. So that's how you might end up seeking services, but it's often not through some voluntary, like, I'm just going to go to the, to the clinic, I'm going to go talk to a therapist to work out these issues. Quinn, could, um, I'm curious, uh, when we talk about stigma, we, we know that in this country there is stigma uh, for many Americans when they think about, do I have a, a men- mental health issue and can I ask for help? Uh, there is that negative connotation uh, when you go ask for help. Well, people will say, well, I'm not, you know, quote unquote crazy. Is that some, something that there's a sentiment there? Yeah, certainly people are afraid of coming off as, uh, you know, or associating themselves with being crazy because there's this element of uncontrollability to it. Um, and, I mean, going back to the luck factor, it, it you know, if, if you have a bad problem gambling issue, um, maybe – the community will see you as having bad luck because you have bad karma because, you know, the gods are looking down negatively at you. And that's that's another uh, reason why people don't want to admit to it, because putting talking about it, putting it out there as reality might really cinch it as reality. And then people are afraid that their luck won't turn, you know, that maybe it's just a string of bad luck. And then one day it'll just change, shift for the better. Um, This is where we live. Again, we're looking at problem gambling among uh, communities of color, specifically today looking at um, how problem gambling uh, impacts uh, Southeast Asians and where to go for help. Uh, In studio with me is Quinn Trong, who is lead, um, rather, outreach and evaluation manager of the North Central Regional Mental Health Board. Also, Vanessa De La Torre, reporter for WNPR, and Tuyen Long, lead case manager with Asian Family Services, a program of community renewal team in Hartford. Tuyen, I I wanted to ask you, uh, when people come in for help, how exactly are they helped? Is it uh, seeing a counselor? Can you talk a little bit about some of the program, like the specifics of the program that helped them get past this addiction? Um, uh, at the moment, you're talking about the um, counselor for problem gambling. Um, we are trying to pull the resource to um, offer the services. Um, but if you're talking about the mental health piece, when the client coming in, they resist in the beginning, and um, it's going to take them a while until they build the trust between the counselor who um, is going to provide the services in mental health services. And that's um, it's going to take them a while until they trust, and then they will um, um, share or disclose um, the problem they have, the depression, um, the addiction, um, later on until you know the trust had built. Otherwise, they um, probably will just um, see you with another, um, you know, person that provide me the counseling and they will not disclose it. Yeah. Quinn, can you add to that? Um, besides counseling, I mean, when someone has a gambling addiction, what is really effective for them? When somebody has a gambling addiction, I think what's important is that the person has multiple layers of support available. Um, and that's something that we really try to highlight in my Asian Ambassadors program. So I just want to talk briefly about that because I think it's a great initiative that's been trying to shed light on this problem gambling issue, not only among Southeast Asians, but among Asian communities and other communities in general. Uh, so the Asian Ambassadors program is one where I got recruited to it by Moimoy Hin McCormick, 
who was the Asian American uh, Affairs Commissioner Executive Director uh, a few years ago. And uh, the point of the program is to go out into communities, into vulnerable communities, um, into Asian American communities, um, as well as other communities to talk about the issues that we face with problem gambling, the vulnerabilities that exist, and how we as a community can come around to support people, how we as individuals can come around and support people, and what kinds of resources could exist. So I think, you know, those kinds of educational initiatives into communities is really helpful at one, at least just going out there and saying that this problem exists and it's not particular to you or to your community. It happens all over the place. And what's important is that we talk about it and we identify it and we figure out how we individually as a community and as a system can help address it. Uh, Vanessa, we know in Connecticut, uh, there's plenty of places to gamble. I mentioned at the top of the show, besides the lottery and Keno at bars and restaurants, we have uh, two uh, major casinos in the southeastern part of the state, another one potentially opening up in East Windsor. Uh, there's now talk at the state capitol to legalize sports betting. What really does the state do to help people uh, deal with problem gambling when it's everywhere? Right. I mean, the the state uh, has the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, which oversees the problem gambling services program. Um, actually, what Quinn just mentioned, the Asian Ambassadors Initiative, that's part of problem gambling services. It's an initiative with them. It's a partnership. Um, but, you know, they have clinics. Um, they have, you know, the hotline. Um, the casinos also provide uh, some funding toward, you know, awareness issues, uh, prevention. They they're often sponsors with the uh, Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling, you know, on conferences and whatnot. But um, it seems like one of the most promising um, initiatives is the Asian Ambassadors Program because it is focused on this cultural sensitivity. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, Moi Moi Hin McCormick, who Quinn just mentioned, she told me that, you know, one of the issues is this issue of cultural competency. So, you know, say someone, uh, say a refugee decides to go and seek help. And there's a language barrier, first of all. Um, and perhaps the clinician doesn't quite understand the historical context, the context of trauma that they're coming from. And perhaps from that meeting, um, you know, feeling like this person really didn't understand me. And so that word could spread to other members of the community. So that's why it's, it's important to have an initiative that is very cult culturally sensitive in which folks from the community are trying to talk uh, and bring awareness about you know, the warning signs of problem gambling. Quinn, uh, this program that you're part of, Asian Ambassadors, it's seen as a potential national model? Well, we're piloting it in <laughs> Connecticut, and certainly we are happy to share what we've learned. We've collected data over the years about um, what educational modules work for which communities and community types and what age groups. Um, but certainly we would love to talk more about it and to share more about it with people who are interested. Uh, we, we know that you work uh, uh, to help uh, connect uh, people with uh, mental health services when they need it. Again, uh, looking at uh, ways to reach communities uh, that are underserved. But personally, when you hear that the state of Connecticut uh, continues to expand uh, gambling in the state, uh, you know, what, are, uh, what do you see problematic about that? Well, certainly there's a tension between what our state needs in terms of revenue and what our state um, 
can absorb in terms of some of these social ills that can come out of uh, trying to establish new casinos. I mean, I think, once again, I come from the perspective that gambling by itself isn't a negative uh, behavior, but there are certain um, vulnerabilities that certain communities have that we have to be aware of and prepare for. And so when we're talking about investing uh, our resources into building new, new casinos, I'd love to hear us talk also concurrently about building resources to create culturally competent care and to ensure that healthcare access um, is available for all communities. Um, how do we uh, then, uh, you know, talk about this problem with younger generations? We've been focusing on, uh, you know, refugee communities. So it's older uh, uh, adults that have come over that have the trauma that uh, develop uh, possibly an addiction. But then, you know, how do you then uh, send that message to younger generations, especially when we hear that, you know, sports betting might be coming to Connecticut and it's pretty easy. It's right on your mobile phone. Yeah, we've talked a lot about that issue. And in the younger communities, we found that uh, talking to them about financial literacy is something that's appealing to them. Um, and talking about problem gambling in the context of financial literacy is a great way to engage young adults and young people to understand and to learn about the issues with problem gambling. Uh, Tuyen, uh, how, do you, how, how do you recommend and what do your clients say when they talk about lessons learned for younger people? Um, I think um, I agree with Quinn and also um, the education piece and also um, um, you know, uh, teaching them about the awareness of the uh, problem gambling. Um, that's the generation we're talking about. And But with the old generation, like um, we mentioned earlier, that about the trauma and, you know, the background they came from, it's a, a, a challenge and difficult. Um, and also I agree with uh, Quinn in terms of the, um, if you can get funding um, to the amb Asian ambassador, um, again, with the culture, um, that they know, and the probably um, piece that it can help to spread the words out and um, also raise the awareness of the problem gambling. Uh, one point that uh, Vanessa made before the show, I wanted to bring it up, the fact that we know that gaming has expanded to Massachusetts. They have a very different tact when it comes to regulating uh, gambling within their state, uh, something that uh, Connecticut doesn't have, and that's independence of it. Right. I mean, there's one thing that came up in talking to um, advocates who are in the field of problem gambling is, you know, why doesn't Connecticut have an independent gaming commission that oversees all aspects of gambling, including the Connecticut lottery, including casinos, including these expanded forms of gambling, including, you know, perhaps sports betting and online gaming. But, for example, if you had such a commission, you could have folks like Quinn, perhaps, um, who are in the mental health field, who who know about the issues that affect um, different populations in our state in relation to problem gambling. Right now, you don't really have that. Right now, you have, say, for example, the Connecticut Department of Consumer Protection that oversees parts of the, the lottery, for example, the, yeah, the Connecticut lottery. Um, if you go to the Consumer De Protection Department's website, you're going to see, you know, you know, graphs on like slot revenues over time. But you don't really have that overseer. Um, and an issue, perhaps, is is funding. You know, do you want another commission to fund? Do you want another panel? But that's something that's been brought up. And in Connecticut, the, the players that stand to gain are at the table. Uh, oh, both tribes, uh, the Connecticut Lottery Corporation, you even have MGM and other outside influ influencers uh, lobbying for expanding uh, uh, gaming. This is this is a huge potential pot of money. So there's a lot of of 
people at the table, people at the state capitol. Uh, one of my former colleagues at the Hartford Current, John Lender, just published a piece in yesterday's paper, in the Sunday paper, about you know all the lobbyists that are just coming to the state capitol over the potential of sports betting. Um, he reported, you know, there are contracts in the ballpark of like two million dollars, and and that we haven't even really gotten started yet. So, I mean, that's huge. Vanessa Della Torre, again, uh, we appreciate you coming on to talk about uh, your story in this fixed odds series from the Public Radio Collaboration, Sharing America. Can you briefly tell us um, some of the other stories of our listeners go to the website that they can hear about communities of color dealing with gambling addiction? Sure. There's a story on Native American gambling addiction. Uh, there's a story on military veteran addiction uh, over problem gambling. And one of my uh, other colleagues, Erica Morrison, out of OPB um, in Portland, Oregon, she focused on Latino laborers um, who are susceptible to problem gambling. And one of the reasons is that, you know, this this desire for the American dream. And like I spoke about earlier, you know, if you're in poverty, you know, gambling could be seen as a way of making money. Vanessa De La Torre, always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks again. Thanks, Lucy. Also, Quinn Trong, Outreach and Evaluation Manager of the North Central Regional Mental Health Board. Quinn, thank you. Thanks, Lucy. And Toyen Long, Lead Case Manager with Asian Family Services of the Community Renewal Team in Hartford, Connecticut. And if you're looking for help for someone that you know, even yourself, maybe dealing with gambling addiction, we're going to tweet out a link of, to the state site of, of phone numbers and other resources to help you. Thanks again. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, one in five children in America are obese. Besides health consequences, there's a correlation between obesity and bullying. After the break, we're going to learn more, and you can and you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Children who are overweight or obese are often the targets of bullying. A recent study published in Pediatric Obesity by UConn has found LGBTQ adolescents face a higher rate of weight-based bullying than their heterosexual peers. For more, the lead author of the study joins me by phone, Dr. Rebecca Poole, Deputy Director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity, also professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies at UConn. Uh, Dr. Poole, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. So it's interesting when we think about weight-based bullying, um, but you looked in your fellow researchers focused in on LGBTQ youth. Uh, tell us about uh, what you found out. Well, you know, we know from almost a decade of research already that weight-based teasing and bullying are very common experiences for adolescents and, and children. But this research has focused almost exclusively on heterosexual youth, and we know almost nothing about these experiences of weight victimization in sexual and gender minority uh, adolescents. And, and that omission is concerning because we know that rates of obesity are are approximately 20% in adolescents, and that includes sexual minority youth uh, who have high rates as well and also high rates of maladaptive and disordered eating. And and so we really wanted to do um, a large-scale study to try to understand what these experiences look like. And we conducted um, a a nationwide survey of over 17,000 sexual and gender minority adolescents. This was a, a comprehensive survey study led by my colleague, Ryan Watson, at the University of Connecticut. And we conducted this study in partnership with the Human Rights Campaign to really try to understand experiences of victimization and health and family relationships of LGBTQ adolescents across the country. 
So when you think about, when you look at your research, when, when you uh, focus in on LGBTQ youth, how likely are they to be overweight and underweight? And, and what are some of the reasons behind that? You know, we see high rates of overweight and obesity in all youth, and, and that does include sexual minority youth as well. When it comes to our, our survey findings, you know, we, we found two key things that, that really stood out to us. The first is that weight-based teasing and, and victimization is very common across diverse sexual and gender identities in LGBTQ kids. Uh, and the second is that we're, we're observing this across diverse body weight categories. And what I mean by that is we're seeing high percentages of sexual minority adolescents reporting that they're being teased or bullied about their weight, not only at high body weights like overweight and obesity, but also at low body weights like underweight. And that's not a pattern that we typically see uh, with heterosexual youth. Well, you've been uh, a researcher in this field for some time, again, looking at childhood obesity. Uh, when we think about whether children are overweight or underweight, you know, what are some of the underlying reasons behind that, uh, mental health disorders being one? Well, in terms of, of reasons for obesity and why those rates are so high, you know, that's a very complicated question that involves a whole range of factors that uh, involve our society, our genetics, our environment, um, family eating practices, um, and we can't pinpoint one singular factor. Uh, but what I think is interesting is as obesity rates have increased, uh, so has bullying and teasing. And, and it's interesting to see that this is now one of the most, if not the most common reason that youth are reporting they're being teased and bullied at, at school and sometimes at home as well. Uh, when uh, they are uh, teased and bullied, that then leads to depression and anxiety? Yeah, you know, it, it, you're exactly right. What we see is that when, when children or adolescents are teased or bullied about their weight, this leads to a range of negative consequences, some for their psychological and emotional health, and that includes higher risk of depression and anxiety, low self-esteem, poor body image, even increased rates of suicidal behaviors. But we also see that it reinforces a number of unhealthy behaviors that paradoxically can actually increase weight gain and obesity. So, for example... When, when we see youth being teased or bullied about their weight, they often turn to food as a temporary coping mechanism. They turn to binge eating. They avoid physical activity, often because physical activities uh, settings are where they feel stigmatized and, and teased. Um, and so we really do see a combination of both emotional and physical health consequences emerging from these experiences. Uh, Dr. Poole, uh, when we think about bullying, we often think about uh, peers in, the, in school, but what have you found among LGBTQ uh, youth uh, who are part of this study? When we think about bullying, are they also getting it from their family members, uh, even educators? Absolutely. One of the, the interesting findings from this study, which is quite concerning, is that across sexual and gender minority identities in our study, we found that between 44 to 70 percent of adolescents reported that they were being teased and bullied about their weight from family members. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, we see that sometimes parents are worried about their child's weight, often if the child has a larger body size, and parents are sometimes quick to make comments about their child's weight. Um, but this can really backfire. And Negative messages about weight and stereotypes about weight have become so automatic in our society that it's easy to have these biases and not even really be aware of them. But it's important to remember that just because we're parents or educated about these issues doesn't mean that we're immune to weight bias. 
and it can come out in, in subtle ways and also more overt ways that are very judgmental and shaming mm-hmm. to, to kids and adolescents. So the fact that we are seeing high rates of weight-based teething, not just from peers in the school setting, but at home as well from family members, um, indicates that we really do need increased awareness about this issue and that we need to better support these youth. We just have a couple of minutes left. I wanted to go through some of your recommendations. One uh, finding is that uh, body weight's often absent in school-based anti-bullying policies. Uh, You believe that needs to change? It absolutely does. You know, most schools now are required to have anti-bullying policies in place, but these policies vary considerably from one school district to another. What we know is that policies that are more comprehensive have better student safety and lower rates of bullying. But it's interesting that despite how common weight-based teasing and bullying um, has become in children, that this issue is often absent in the language of policies. And we've done a number of national studies to look at support for strengthening these policies, and we see considerable parental support and public support for adding body weight to the language of both anti-bullying policies in schools and anti-bullying laws at the state level. And what recommendations do you have for pediatricians and other doctors, perhaps, uh, whose patients are LGBTQ uh, youth? Well, you know, it's interesting. Our findings of this study are really timely in light of a recent policy statement that came out from the American Academy of Pediatrics that really encourages and recommends pediatricians to have this issue of weight-based bullying on their radar and to be assessing and screening youth for these issues. What our new findings say from the study is that pediatric providers should be aware that sexual and gender minority youth are vulnerable to weight-based victimization regardless of what their body size is and that they should be screening these for victimization experiences, not just in the context of sexual identity, but also body weight. And then, Dr. Poole, I I am curious, just overall, is childhood obesity going down in this country? You know, not in the way that we need to be seeing it go down. Um, In in some groups, um, we see kids remaining very vulnerable, especially at earlier ages. And, you know, there's a lot of prevention efforts that need to be put in place, but those need to come really broadly from a societal level if you want to uh, see shifts in, in these rates. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Dr. Rebecca Poole, again, a deputy director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity, also professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies at UConn. Thanks so much, Dr. Poole. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Uh, special, special thanks also to our technical producer, Kyone Wolf. And don't forget, Where We Live is coming to a coffee shop near you. We're hosting coffee breaks at local cafes around the state to hear from you. What issue or story in your community is not getting the attention it needs? Join me and producers Lydia Brown and Carmen Baskoff Tuesday, February 26th at Washington Street Coffee House in New London. We can't wait to meet you. Check out our Facebook page for more details and stay tuned for tomorrow's show.